Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever had formed the earth of the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. So Lord, we pray as we approach your words in Matthew, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Therefore, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. And let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands for your glory. We pray this in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Over the last month, we have been studying what Jesus has to say about the end times within the Olivet Discourse. This morning, Lord willing, we will finish this sermon found in chapters 24 and 25 of Matthew's Gospel. I'm going to ask if you would please turn with me there now. You can find this on page 830 of your Pew Bible. Allow me to situate this morning's text and Jesus' overall message with just a brief review. This event happens during Holy Week, the week before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Each day, Jesus would teach and heal in the city of Jerusalem, and in the evening hours, he would return to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And according to verse 2 of Matthew 26, this speech appears to have occurred right before the Lord's Supper, or the night before the Lord's Supper. And it came about due to Jesus' startling statement that the temple would be destroyed at the beginning of Matthew chapter 24. The disciples naturally interpreted that the destruction of the temple would bring about the end of all things that they knew it. That surely with the temple destroyed, this would be the time that Jesus would ascend to the throne of national Israel and lead the Jews to become God's preeminent people over all the earth. They could not envision what we refer to as a church age, a period of time in which God would draw individuals from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be citizens of his kingdom through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes this occasion to set them straight on a few things. He will tell them what they need to prepare for as they await the final end of the age. Again, may I remind you that this sermon is specifically for his followers. This was not information that Jesus declared publicly. This is instruction exclusively for his disciples. In verses 4 through 14, the Lord describes the general state for believers. Christians will not only have to endure the effects of the fall within a sin-sick environment, they will face considerable opposition from the rest of the world until the second advent. In verse 9, Jesus calls this period a time of tribulation. And Jesus promises in verse 13 that the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the major theme for the Christian within his message. Endurance, endurance, endurance. He also warns his disciples of the siege of Jerusalem, found in verses 15 through 28. This event happened in 70 AD when the Jews rebelled against Rome. 
And the Roman army besieged the city for months, and conditions within its walls were so appalling, and the citizens stubbornly refused to surrender, and eventually the Romans sacked the city and destroyed the temple, just as Jesus predicted in verse 2. In verse 29, he begins to differentiate between those days of the tribulation and the day of his return. At the moment of his second advent, everyone on earth will know it. Everyone will see it. For the believer, it's going to be a glorious day of our full redemption. But for those who do not know the Lord, all the tribes of the earth will mourn of his coming. Because it will bring about judgment. And Jesus uses the illustration of a fig tree. Just as one sees the branches put forth that shoots, then you know the season of fruit bearing is near. May I just say, we've already seen the signs that the season is at hand, especially that of the destruction of the temple. We should know that we live in the days when our Lord could appear at any moment. And so from this point in his sermon till the end of chapter 25, Jesus will describe what the Christians should do as they await his coming. It essentially boils down here to to three lessons. Number one, don't be caught underwear. Number two, use whatever the Lord has entrusted to you. And number three, serve the church. I'm going to repeat those again. You can find them on your outline. Don't be caught unaware. Use whatever the Lord has entrusted to you. And three, serve the church. That's what we should be doing as we endure to the end. It held for Christians in the first century as well as for those of us here in the 21st century. And as we delve into the first of these, to not be caught unaware, know how the Lord indicates that not only will his return be sudden and at a time unexpected, but he also anticipates a time of delay that extends beyond the destruction of Jerusalem. For the skeptic who who mocks the Christian, they might say, well, see, Jesus said he would return nearly 2,000 years ago, but, but where is he? Surely he would have returned by now if he was who he claimed to be and his words are true. But that would contradict what Jesus states within this passage. After the destruction of the temple, he alludes to such a delay. A time like the days of Noah, where where people are eating and drinking and getting married and having babies and, and going about life, business as usual. A time when the gospel would be able to circulate all around the world to the nations. To such a skeptic, I would respond as Peter did, Dear friend, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now is the time of repentance. Now is the time to seek his mercy. So within these next set of verses, Jesus teaches his disciples not to be caught unaware as most will be. Just like when the flood swept away sinful humanity, there will be some taken to judgment while going about their daily business, such as working in a field or or grinding at a mill. And his disciples are to stay awake, to remain alert for his coming, no matter how long the delay. His appearance will be sudden like a thief in the night when no one knows when the burglar will strike. Therefore, according to verse 44, they must stay awake. They must be ready. He tells the parable of two servants in verses 45 through 51. The master's away on a trip, and this is the day before cell phones that anybody could alert people beforehand. There would be no warning of when he gets back. 
no one knows when he will return. One servant is faithful and diligent to maintain the household until his master returns. The other presumes upon the master's good graces while he's away, and he pridefully gives himself over into his own appetites and his sense of self-importance. But Jesus assures the master will return, and judgment will fall upon that wicked servant. Therefore, Christian, do not be caught unaware. Jesus continues this lesson of not being caught unaware with the next parable in chapter 25, verse 1, in your Bibles, that translates the first Greek word that's tote as then, but it's more properly translated as at that time. This new parable is coming on the heels of Jesus speaking about the return of the master, meaning his return. And it's helpful to note that he associates his return with the final consummation of the kingdom of heaven. He tells a story here of ten virgins preparing for a wedding feast. Now, it was customary to welcome either the bride or the groom into the city of which they were going to be married. And on this occasion, these ladies were anticipating the arrival of the groom. These maidens acted as sort of, uh, sort of ladies-in-waiting for the bride. And they had one job, one job, only one. When the groom arrived, they were to usher him to the home of the bride. That was it. They had lamps with them should the groom arrive after nightfall, and then they could illuminate the way. We learn in the verses here that half of the wise were enough to bring uh, enough oil there, and others had to purchase some. And those five that discovered that they didn't have enough to oil, and they had to go and purchase some, they missed out on doing their one job. They completely missed the purpose of why they were there in the first place, to welcome the groom into the home of the bride. And when they returned from the gathering more oil, they discovered that they were locked out of the party. They knocked on the door, begging the Lord of the home to let them in. But, but since they were not with the groom, he did not know them. And Jesus uses this parable to caution the disciple to remain watchful, to stay constantly prepared. Make sure of your calling and your election. Don't tap out. Life in this world is normal as the God of the universe sustains you through his Son, because the one who endures to the end shall be saved. I had a very vivid illustration of this this morning. I had to drop off some paperwork for Jim Carter in his Sunday school class, and when I dropped it off, it was precisely like 9.02, and he had locked me out of his class in this morning. <laughs> Jim, this is not what that parable is describing, brother. Please keep the door open for those that want to come to Sunday school. He has not returned yet. This parable is awfully reminiscent of what Jesus taught at the Sermon on the Mount. Listen carefully to this. This is Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Note, it is those who do the will of the Father and who are known by the King that will enter the kingdom. Amen. And that fits well with the next lesson. 
While a Christian waits upon the return of Jesus, they are to use what they have been entrusted by the Father. The next parable illustrates this. The it in verse 14 refers back to verse 1, when the kingdom of heaven arrives on the earth. This is what it will be like. Jesus tells the story of a wealthy man who goes on a journey, and while he's away, he entrusts an exorbitant sum of money to three servants. A talent was a monetary unit that was the equivalent of 20 years' worth of wages for the average worker. This was a huge amount of money to leave in the care of his workers. It shows on one hand the sheer wealth of the master, and on the other the generosity and trust that he had in his servants. One servant receives five talents, another two, and the last one. The master's not playing favorites, but, but Jesus points out that the sum each was given was according to their abilities, what they were capable of managing. The more that was given, the greater the expectation upon that servant. And we're told that just as soon as the master left, the, the first two servants immediately went to work. They wanted to prove their loyalty to their employer. After all, each was entrusted with a significant amount of money. They wanted to prove they could be trusted to get the job done. But we learned that the last servant, with the one talent, merely just hid his money into the ground. The master returns. Note again, Jesus says in verse 19, after a long time. Jesus anticipates a significant duration of time before his second advent. When the master returns, each servant gives an account here. The first two double the master's investment in them. The master commends them. I love how he says, you have been faithful over a little. (laughs) It makes it sound like 140 years worth of annual wages was a paltry sum compared to the master's real wealth. And so it will be for us when we enter the kingdom of heaven. Not only do we receive a commendation from the master, but but they are told that, that they will now be over much more, just as Matthew chapter 24 verse 47 predicts, and also a little bit later in chapter 25 verse 34. There will be a time when Christians will rule with Christ over all. According to Matthew 19, 28, when we enter the kingdom of heaven, Christians will sit on thrones. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, we will sit as judges over the whole world. We are given this authority by our king through our union with Christ. And the parable portrays such faithful believers that endure to the end will receive the same inheritance. Glory unimaginable. But then the final servant appears with a single talent. And he basically blames the master for his inactivity. That it was out of fear of him that drove him to bury the treasure instead of using it. The judgment is swift. The servant didn't even do the bare minimum of putting the money in the bank to draw interest. Therefore, the master gives his talent, his one talent, to one of the faithful servants, and he casts out the unfaithful servant and disassociates himself from him forever. This person who once held a place of honor, of being entrusted with the riches of the master, now has nothing. Jesus says during this period of waiting, those who are truly his followers must use what they have been entrusted with. And that brings us to the last parable. 
When Jesus returns in his glory, just as he said when he explained the previous parables back in Matthew 13, he will send out his angels to separate the believers from the non-believers. And Jesus will sit in judgment over all the nations gathered before him. And in John's gospel, our Lord said in John chapter 5, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Every person, alive presently or preceded in death, will be judged. Earlier in this gospel, Jesus said in Matthew 16, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Notice the emphasis on deeds within all of these verses. It's not just that one says they believe. Actions must accompany that belief. Evidence must be shown to prove that a transformation has occurred. I could list a, a host of friends and family that at one point said they gave their lives to Jesus and said they believed that he was their Savior. But there was no evidence in their life that this was so. Oh, oh, for a time, they may have pretended and lived up to the expectations of others, but there was no real, lasting allegiance to Jesus. The world was more attractive than Jesus, and comfort and ease were preferred over suffering for the sake of Christ's glory. No genuine faith was produced from their faith, or fruit was produced from their faith. James, the, the brother of our Lord, writes in his letter, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister, and here he means a fellow Christian, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the judgment of Jesus is not just that one calls Jesus Lord, but that they live their life in such a way that it proves it. And this next series of verses demonstrates this, especially in a specific manner. Jesus says he will separate the individuals of a nation like a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. This often happened in the evening time. The goats and the sheep might be pastured together, but at night they would be separated into their own pens. It would have been a vivid illustration to his contemporaries. One group's placed on the right and the other is placed on the left. And, and to those on Jesus' right, he states their privilege. And why? Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Verse 40, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, 
you did it to me. Now, this is important, especially if it's criteria by which we're going to be judged, right? Two observations here. First, these good deeds were done in such a way by the righteous, they didn't even know that they were doing it. It just came out of the overflow of their lives. Lord, when, when did we see you do these things, or when did you see us do these things? They, they weren't taking note of what they were doing in the moment, as though somehow they were trying to earn their master's favor. If that was the case, and they thought it merited the kingdom by their actions, don't you think they would have been keeping track of their deeds? But their response seems to indicate they didn't realize what they were doing was unto the Lord. And that's the second observation. These deeds were done to Jesus. Now, from 1 Corinthians 12, we know that the church is the body of Christ. Each believer is a member of that body. Paul uses this same body imagery in Ephesians chapter 4. And Jesus just stated in verse 40, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. The Greek word here for brothers can also include sisters as well. It's much like when we use the word mankind. We don't mean just males, but all of humanity, men and women alike. But this Greek word does not mean all of humanity. It means family, brothers and sisters. So we need to be careful here. This is not just doing good deeds to everyone that we come in contact with. That's a common misconception. This is service to those within the church and for the church. Jesus never, ever refers to non-believers or humanity in general as his brothers and sisters. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, he referred to neighbors, but he did not use the word brother nor sister. Let me give you a specific example of this. Turn back to Matthew chapter 12. This is found on page 818 of your pew Bible. This really defines it. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my, mother, my brother and sister and mother. Remember what we read earlier in Matthew chapter 7? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's the same thought here in Matthew 12. Again, he goes on to say, he told his disciples, Matthew chapter 23, verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And when the women discovered him after the resurrection, Jesus told them, Matthew 28, 10, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there you will see me. Jesus never refers to those outside of the church as brothers and sisters. The deeds we are to perform here is in relation to the church. When the church functions as it should, when we love one another as Christ loved us, then by this love and service to each other, the world will know that we are his disciples. Our unity in the gospel is meant to display something supernatural to the outside world. 
The church, being the church, is one of the best tools of evangelism. I can't expect a non-believer to provide mutual service to me. They aren't regenerated. And I should, ex- I should expect them to act according to, to their sin nature and their selfish desires. This was a constant source of frustration for my students when I was a youth pastor and also for my daughters when growing up. They were always shocked when a non-believer mistreated them and took advantage of them. They had an expectation that, that someone they'd placed their friendship or, or family members would, would treat them in the same manner that they gave. But it always seemed to disappoint them that their non-believing friends would fail them and do something extremely selfish and easily write them off. But within the church, there should be an expectation of serving and loving one another, of confession, of repentance, of forgiveness, of building one another up, of, of true covenantal commitment to one another, always there supplying love as it's needed. So based upon these questions in Matthew 25, are you taking care of the thirsty, the lonely, the poor, the the widows, the sick, the persecuted within the body of Christ? Now, I don't think Jesus is saying we meet these bare necessities in the church and we're good. I don't think a few actions in the bare minimum and, and we make it to heaven. That's not the point. It seems to be the attitude that such love comes freely out of our life to our brothers and sisters. Not all of us may have the resources to meet all the needs. But like the single talent, whatever we're entrusted, it is the least thing that we can do. I think our love for Christ can be displayed in teaching children in Sunday school and at vacation Bible school, taking food over and visiting the bereaved or or visiting families that have a new baby in the home, helping to babysit our fellow brothers and sisters' children visiting with older members of the congregation, having another family over into your home for a meal, being there when they need you, knowing that if they pick up the phone and call you, you'll be there. When a sister feels oppressed for her faith in the workplace, fellow believers should surround her in prayer and love to encourage her. Never forget However you are serving your brother and sisters, you are actually serving Christ. You're serving Jesus. That is the point. So how devoted should we be to one another within the body of Christ, recognizing this is Christ's body? And then the converse is true. Verses 41 through 46, those who fail to serve their brothers and sisters reveal they are not of the flock. This is why there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christians. You must be connected to the local body of Christ. If you've been absent from the service of the Lord's table, you really need to question, Lord, do I really love you? Am I really loving your body, the church? This is a matter of eternal consequence here. The punishment is the same as the devil and his demons. And according to verses 41 and 46, here it it is eternal. Let's see if we can sum this up. Jesus says Christians are living in a time of tribulation until he returns. This is the time of testing that reveals the true nature of our hearts. Are we living watchful in anticipation of his return? 
Are we living out what we say we believe? Are we growing in what we have been entrusted with, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we serving the body of Christ or merely ourselves? It's interesting that here Matthew records the teaching of our Lord on Wednesday night preceding his death. And in John chapter 13 through chapter 17, John records Jesus' lesson at the Last Supper on the following night. In that passage, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the period after his resurrection. He says things to them like they must serve one another in the most demeaning acts like washing each other's feet. They must love one another as Jesus loved them as a demonstration of his power to the world. If they love him, they should keep his commandments using what they have been trusted with. Jesus will be going away, but he's going to leave them with another helper, the Holy Spirit that will lead them. They should bear fruit as evidence that they are connected to his vine. They will have trouble in this world, but they are to take heart because he has overcome the world. They must endure based upon that promise. He will return to take them back to where he will be. And he prays not only for them, but also for those like us who will come after them who also believe in the good news. It's a prayer that anticipates the gathering of the church. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The two messages are remarkably similar. Don't get caught unaware of my return to claim you. Use what you have been entrusted with your brothers and sisters. You have a glorious, all-powerful gospel message that will transform lives. Serve one another in the church as though you were serving me. This is what we do as we wait. God uses such to expand his kingdom on the earth because he receives the glory through this. And the one who endures to the end shall be saved. Jesus' last words of this discourse are Matthew 26, verse 2. You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Those words explain why his disciples were visibly troubled at the Last Supper the following evening. But this is the ultimate example of one who persevered to the end, one who left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Like us, Jesus knew what was coming. Painful hardship. Way more than we'll ever experience. There at the cross, Jesus received the full wrath of God for every sin we believers committed. And yet the crucifixion was not the end. It was what he must endure to bring new life to us. He already foretold that the resurrection was beyond the cross. In Matthew 20, he said, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and, and they're going to condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Not he might be raised. Not maybe I will be raised but he will be raised on the third day. Therefore, church, we may be called to endure some painful experiences. In fact, you may be going through that right now. Rebellious children, a broken relationship, feeling suppressed for your faith in the workplace, 
the loss of someone that you love deeply, chronic pain or illness, relationship to a spouse that doesn't seem to love you. This is not the end. This is what we are called to endure until the end comes. And the life that is on the other side is glorious. It's not a second best existence. In fact, take a look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This was the plan all along. There is a better, more complete life awaiting the Lord's elect, a place of no more sin, no more suffering, no more tears, eternal bliss with the intimacy of God himself. And Jesus proves it. He assures it based upon his own faith and example in his death and resurrection. He has promised, and as we endure, he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And then if you turn the pages to the last chapter of this glorious gospel of Matthew, he promises, and behold, as you are going through this, making disciples, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I approach you in such humility. I would be the first among my brothers and sisters to say, Lord, sometimes we just feel so tired. We feel so weary. We feel the, the weight of this sin-sick world upon us, and Lord, it just is, is so easy to cause us to want to wanna kind of tap out, become disengaged, to forget the glorious promises that you have pronounced over us. At times, Lord, we would rather seek the attraction of the world and the comfort of the world than we would the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. But that would mean, Lord, that we are dismissing the power of the resurrection when we do so. That, Lord, resurrection happens and occurs because something has died. And so, Lord, we pray you would keep us in a state of being watched, that we would wait and anticipate the coming of your Son, Jesus our glorious King. And while we're waiting, while we're anticipating that we would use what we have been entrusted with, that, Lord, we would fall back on the gospel, that, Lord, you tell us that it is the power of salvation to all, and that, Lord, we don't need something else plus the gospel. It's too often that we think that we need something else in order to, to make the fruit appear, to, to, to make us feel like we can endure through this. We need to rely upon the promises that you have given us and that we rely upon what Jesus has done on our behalf. Too often, Lord, we fall back on thinking that it's up to us to prevent the sin in our lives rather than resting that Jesus has already provided the cure for our sin and that we fight for holiness because we love him, not because it achieves something. 
So, Lord, allow us to to use this glorious gospel. Allow us to, to rest in it. Allow us to proclaim it. Allow us to realize it is the only remedy for our friends and family, Lord, who are not believers and are suffering in this world. And then, Lord, we pray that we would be a glorious witness to that in the way that we serve one another here. I will be so bold as to pray for the brothers and sisters of Providence Baptist Church. I pray, Lord, that when we are weary, when we are discouraged, that our brothers will take note, they'll come alongside of us to encourage us. But even in the midst of it, Lord, that that what will fuel us to serve, what will fuel us to be present in each other's lives is that we are serving you. And in the midst of the service, you are to be found in that. And so, Lord, we pray that we would love one another as you have loved us. So that as we love one another, all men will know that we are your disciples. And we do this for your glory, for your praise, that outsiders, when they see it, they would say, oh, what a beautiful thing. What a testimony. How can I have such love like that? And that, Lord, you would use it to draw all men to yourself and that they would find the peace and the joy that they have been searching for for all of their lives. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.